Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue collar work ethic and where I find real value. I'm so happy to announce that we have our first sponsor for the podcast. That sponsorship comes from our friends over at Hunters of Color. Hunters of Color is a 501c3 nonprofit. They're the only nationwide hunting nonprofit led by BIPOC for BIPOC. They're working on increasing black, indigenous, and other peoples of color participation in hunting for the sake of conservation, food sovereignty, and to preserve our ancestral traditions. And Hunters of Color in the Oregon chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is proud to announce a collaborative raffle in an effort to raise funds for access initiatives in Northeast Oregon. This will be a three-day guided bull elk rifle hunt for one hunter on the 33,000-acre Zumwalt Prairie Preserve in Northeast Oregon during the fall 2023 season. That includes lodging on location at the preserve. The hunter may bring up to two non-hunting guests. Hunting is entirely on foot and hunters should be in good physical condition. The property contains steep slopes and can be physically challenging to hunt. Recently, hunter success rates have been close to 100% with world-class bulls for this tag. Those raffle tickets are one for $25 or five for $100. A maximum 2,500 tickets will be sold. That means if you spend $100, you get five chances in that raffle. You have a one in 500 chance of getting a really coveted uh, world-class bull elk tag. I believe they do six tags per year on this 33,000 acres. The Nature Conservancy owns that property, and there are numerous elk herds using that place. And again, success rates close to 100%. If you want to check out more info on that raffle, just go to the Hunters of Color Instagram page and check out the link in their bio. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. This week, I'm joined by David Joy from the mountains of Western North Carolina. David Joy is an old soul. He's uh, an author. More specifically, he's a novelist. Uh, I think so many of us, uh, you know, with podcasts and blogs and whatnot, we, we call ourselves writers, but David is a writer in a Hemingway-esque sense. Uh, he lives kind of a cloistered life there in the mountains, and he writes really beautiful books focusing on uh, the people and the places that he's so familiar with. Uh, he told me that his the, the few things that he really feels that he's really good at are uh, writing novels, hunting turkeys, and catching uh, flathead catfish. So in my book, that makes him a gentleman of the highest regard. We got to hang out. I mean, we had been like aware of each other and talked back and forth, uh, you know, internet stuff. But we got to hang out uh, this year's revival, uh, which took place down 
in southern Texas. We were hunting sandhill cranes, and uh, man, such a phenomenal time. Such wonderful people were there. Uh, David Joy, uh, Lindsay Davis, who's been on the podcast, uh, new friend Bianca Germain, who uh, will be on a subsequent podcast. We're there with Trevor Hayworth, uh, who I did a little hunt swap with. But man, it was such a good time. The Sandhill Cranes are crazy, fascinating uh, critters. And it was just so neat to, to spend time with just like a few really, really quality people. And David is funny and self-effacing and really uh, self-aware and like just anxious enough to be endearing. And I've become such a big fan of his. And we talk about this in the podcast, but uh, one of his books has been made into a movie starring Billy Bob Thornton and Robin Wright. And that uh, is coming out soon, I believe. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. Take a look on Amazon or wherever you get your books and, and find something that David has written and start to read it. Uh, you'll be just as amazed as I am. Uh, and please enjoy this conversation with author, fisherman, turkey hunter extraordinaire, David Joy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. This week, I am in kind of south, central, eastern Texas, uh, kind of between Houston and San Antonio, and I'm joined by one David Joy, who is far from home in the, uh, the western North Carolina mountains. Uh, we've been down here for this year's revival, which, uh, you might remember is like when I basically just invite some people that I think are cool and smart and interesting. And we hang out for a couple of days and hunt and cook and conversate together. And this year uh, we were able to come down here with Southern skies outfitters and hunt sandhill cranes. So Mr. Joy, thank you for joining me, and thanks for coming on this. Thanks for leaving the mountain and coming all the way down here to Texas. Well, thanks for bringing me out here to shoot birds. It was it was fun. It has been a really good time, man. It's yeah. been a good crew of people. Uh, David, so, uh, when I, I guess I became aware of you when Worth Parker came out and hunted a couple years ago, and uh, was doing like an article for Garden and Gun. And he was telling me about you then. And so I just kind of started internet creeping and stuff. Uh, you're a, you're an enigmatic figure, I would say. Uh, and it's, it's, it's like clear that you are, you know, I mean, it's in the best possible sense, like a mountain person, right? Yeah. Uh, but then like, but then if you like follow you on Instagram, you'll see you popping up in France, right? You'll be, yeah. you'll be in France for what a month how long were you there last time uh i went twice last year and the one trip was a little over two weeks and the next time was about a week okay yeah so and we haven't even i'm leading up to what you do right yeah but uh a striking figure right so uh when we bought some roadside shrimp yesterday <laughs> uh, the gentleman who spoke very little english did speak enough english to ask you if you played basketball, and then he held his hand up high in the air and said, God damn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
would you say six foot five? Yeah, six foot five. Size fifteen boot. Yeah. <laughs> and you you wear out them soles stomping around the hollers and like is that Smoky Mountains? Is that what is uh, Yeah, it? yeah, Smoky Mountains, Blue Ridge. To me it's all you know, I think when people think Smokies they think kinda East Tennessee, like Dolly Parton. Yeah. You know. Uh and yeah, we're we're kinda right there. I'm right where uh kinda all those it's about as far west in North Carolina as you can go, but it's where Tennessee comes in, Georgia comes in, South Carolina comes in. Mm-hmm. I could be in any of those states very quickly. Uh, and I heard you say, I heard you say yesterday that you were twelfth generation North Carolinian. Yeah, yeah, for the good and the bad. But yeah, uh, you know, my first ancestors kind of came in from Virginia, late sixteen hundreds, uh, and then you know by the time we get to around revolutionary war and and you know on up into early 1800s most of my father and this is on my paternal side Mm -hmm. uh you know most of my father's family had kind of settled in uh the catawba river valley which is kind of the the middle of the state uh the foothills and um so yeah uh and this is this is like plot hound land right this is well western north carolina is absolutely uh yeah we we were talking a little bit about um you know where that where that dog comes from that dog originally comes from germany but that that family the plot family settles in haywood county which is the neighboring county of where i live now yeah Uh, i live in jackson county uh and for i don't know ashley lived in this house for probably 20 years i lived there about five but the house that she lived in in haywood county uh i mean you could throw a rock from it and hit the plot house uh where that where that family had settled and where that dog was really uh you know bred um but yeah so everybody's running plots uh running curves running walkers uh you you see them everywhere and man so like plots are known as like a bear dog yeah uh are they running walkers for for bears as well are they running deer out there with dogs no no uh i think there may be a season for that in the eastern part of the state but i you know i'm not entirely sure of that nobody in the in the mountains uh is doing that and we actually have a very limited uh deer season um you know our our deer population has really been on a rebound uh and I i think it's starting to do well now but uh you know for instance, where I live uh, still has no either sex. Uh, you know, you can only kill bucks. Um, and some of the neighboring counties have an introductory season where you can kill does on certain days. But, but yeah, they're still trying to build that population back there. Man, that that's, that's kind of unusual because I think people think of white-tailed deer as just you know east of the mississippi just thick everywhere yeah uh well i think everything at some point in time everything kind of disappeared from the mountains and it's because they hunted the hell out of it sure you know i mean they killed everything (laughs) trying to live yeah yeah yeah, absolutely i mean uh you know there's a very long history of of people basically surviving off groundhog there uh and that was why uh you know game was no longer in abundance because people had hunted it out um you know, and and so, so really, especially over the past twenty years, I think you've really started to see uh, the deer population, especially the bear population. You know, the bear population is doing very well uh, in in that part of the country. 
uh, awkward segue, but like, let's establish, I guess, kind of what you do for a living. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. it's, uh, and so I'll, so I'll establish this first. Like, you know, you told me that like what you care about is hunting turkeys and catching flatheads, right? Yeah. Which I mean, right. man after my own heart. Uh, but by trade, by profession, you're a novelist. Yeah. Which, uh, I'd say it's not it's not only unusual, but like to me, that's a uh, that's kind of like a high art profession, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I guess at this point I'm a writer. Yeah. But I'm not, I mean you know I'm not a novelist by yeah. by any stretch. You know, I'm not a journalist. I really what I write is like personal essays mostly yeah right but uh but you're like an established novelist a well-established uh and well-respected novelist and then i guess kind of in you know the americana tradition you're like big in europe too right yeah or or in france uh you know i'm I'm translated in a lot of places over there but france is really the only place i would say that yes i have an audience you know uh i mean and so would you do you consider yourself you know like in the tradition of southern writers yeah yeah uh i don't think there's any way around that um you know as far as the kind of the lineage of of a writer like me in the south you know i th- you know you have to say faulkner uh but then you you get the voices like flannery o'connor eudora welty uh and and then kind of um there were a whole lot of writers that that were doing things that were really interesting to me in like the 90s um even into the early 2000s but larry brown i was was gonna ask Uh, about larry yeah yeah. larry brown william gay um you know harry cruz uh ron rash there was a whole lot of writers um who who i would say spoke to me in a way uh, that no other literature ever has. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, is most people think though, like when you say this, they're like, Oh, I read a lot of books when I was a kid. I didn't read no books when I was a kid. I fished. Um, I grew up in an oral storytelling tradition Mm -hmm. and all my life I had teachers hand me books and they were the wrong books. And then I was in college and, and, uh, Ron Rash, who I was talking about, handed me a copy of William Gay's I hate to see that evening sun go down and that book, it was the first time in my life that I was reading the stories of my people. Mm-hmm. And it was like uh, it was like a light bulb went off. It was like a, all of a sudden I thought, I don't have to wear a fucking wool coat and elbow patches. Uh, you know, I don't have to be – like a novelist doesn't have to look like this. And a novelist doesn't have to tell this particular type of story. Uh, and, and I think that was a really uh, – validating moment for me early on as a as a writer uh and you said that like you sold your first novel like 10 years ago right yeah yeah so 10 years ago so you're like in your late 20s yeah and then so how does that how does that transform uh, like the tenor of your life yeah so at the, at the time i was working two jobs uh i'd get to my first job at eight uh, you know, I'd get off about five. I'd, I'd get to my second job at five thirty. Uh, that job would go to about nine thirty or ten. 
I'd get off and I'd go home. Um, and I was, I was writing in the middle of the night out of necessity. Uh, that was the only time I had to write. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think if you talk to most artists, uh, it's a compulsion more than any, more than it's anything else. It's like I had to do it. It's not like I. It's not like oh well, I did this because uh, it was like I, if I didn't create this, I felt like I would die. Uh, painters are like that, you know. Photographers are like that. Musicians are most certainly like that, uh, and that's how it was for me. And so I, I wrote, you know, when I had to, which was from about you know. 11 o'clock at night until about three or four in the morning and I get up and I do it again and I write this novel and uh I didn't have any connections or anything I, I just sent an email to a agent a couple of different agents in in New York that I kind of thought might dig what I was trying to do uh she winds up I wind up signing with somebody uh and then jump forward you know it, it, probably about a nine-month process working with an editor from that and then sell the book. Uh, and yeah, when that happened, I think for any person with any sense or any person who had ever had any kind of real money, it would have been a, a joke to them what I made in my advance for that book. But for me, uh, it took very little money for me to be like, I've hit the lottery. Uh, you know, and so when that happened I, I was fed up with those jobs and i and i i thought well hell i'm just gonna do this and i quit and uh i've been very fortunate to uh string it along uh and there, there's times that the money runs out and you go work farm work for i worked on a sheep farm or uh you know i went and did I, I ain't gonna say I did carpentry. I helped a carpenter. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> he said, you know, do this, and I did that. Uh, but I did. I've done stuff like that to string it along. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of how it's how it's gone. Man, you know that's I. So as an aside, man, that's actually really heartening to hear you say that because, uh, like Hal Herring, right? Someone we we mutually admire. Yeah. Uh, I talked to him about writing. Yeah. And I think, like, Hal's a person that tons of people admire, right? Yeah. Like, he's incredibly well-read. He's a yeah. amazing and prolific writer. He's got, you know, he's got, like, a voice up there with, like, James Earl Jones and stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and just, like, just a compelling figure uh, who has, you know, he's got, like, tons of years left, but he's already created... Uh, like a legacy right yeah yeah absolutely but he 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 has not financially enriched himself yeah right you know yeah. he he goes and does all sorts of stuff you yeah. know to make a living to he was doing that when he was raising his children right yeah uh like i've been to his house and his house is so cool and like i told him i was like this is exactly what i want how herring's house to look like yeah you know but it's uh it's not like granite countertops and all that kind yeah. of stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's so I'm not heartened to hear that that like sometimes the money runs out and you like yeah. got to go and and make a dollar, but it uh, like you know honestly that's what I do, yeah. right? You know, like I run out of money, I go do some remodel job, yeah. hate it, you know, <laughs> swear I'm never gonna do it again, but yeah. 
Yeah. You know, there's like you gotta stay alive, right? Yeah. And I and I think uh I think for people like me, for people like Hal, most certainly for you, um the financial side of things has never uh been a governing factor for most of the decisions we make. Sure. Uh like like you know, we say you know, Hal, me, you, we're not like monetarily rich. Uh, I would say every one of us is spiritually rich. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, I think it was like I, I told you, the minute that I knew that I would like uh, Jonathan as a as a person, it, it was you describing the sound of a duck coming in, that that sound. Yeah, the wings. The, yes. the wind over the wings, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's because the average person isn't – they're not picking up on that, even when they try – and uh, you know, I think about yesterday. We sat in that field. the The moment that will hang with me more than anything was there was a moment when that flock of birds and and not cranes. I'm talking about the birds that were just out in that field, you know, loafing around doing whatever they were doing. You talking about those, like those little shorebirds? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I don't know if it was them or another group, but yeah, something like that. But they got up in that sunlight and they turned, and all of them, all of a sudden, it was like it was like they just changed color. It was like a magic trick. Sure, yeah. Uh, and this whole, you know, they're they're going up and they turn and there's this all of a sudden this bright spot of color in the sky. It's like I want that to be my life. I want that to make up my life, right? Hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't. I drive a 2005 Colorado that may not start when I get home. Uh, you know, I live in an 800 square foot house. Um, that's way too small for anything we've got um you know but every day that's the type of stuff that that i'm experiencing uh and i don't want it any other way and for the most part i'm not even surrounded by people who have it another way on this drive out here you know i I stopped at a hotel and i was telling matt about you know uh sitting in that hotel bar and you hear all these people and it's it's a real interesting place because they're all travelers they're all their own business they're all there's this one moment where they're all going to have a drink and kind of mingle with these people and so you hear all these people and the only thing they're fucking talking about is work and i just the one guy he said that he did that he was gone from his house four to five days every week running business trips Mm -hmm. if i had to live like that i'd blow my brains out like i mean that yeah, like that sounds uh, that sounds absolutely horrible to me. Um, I'd much rather go sit in the field and me and you pretend like we're the field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hiding those layout blinds. Yeah, dude, that's. I think I was telling you this, man, but you know, so I like I went to these private schools most of my life. So I went to this all boys Catholic high school that's like, like very well known uh, where I'm from, and it's like produced. Yeah, it produced a like a ton of like notable people and like you know, there's not very many people that go to that high school and don't end up wealthy, right? Yeah. Uh, but so my buddy, the guy, so Brian, the guy who edits this, uh, do you see this little? There's like a little kid out there in the yard. There's a bunch of little kids out there in the yard. They're playing with all the feathers from where we've been picking birds. <laughs> That's wild. So, yeah, we're sitting here like at this bunkhouse. I'm sure it's like the people who own the property, their family. Uh, that's actually like a really cool, beautiful thing, man. Look at them. They're picking up feathers and just having like a ball. Yeah. 
and, uh, and none of those people in that hotel room would have, or in that hotel bar would have appreciated that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that's like, that's some Rockwellian shit, man. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, man, so he's like talking, whatever, this kid we went to high school with, his father passed away, he goes to the funeral, he like runs on all these dudes that we went to college or high school with. And, you know, so like, we're all like 39, like 40 or whatever. And he's like telling me like, this dude works at Meta and this guy does this, right? And just, I mean, he got more money than I'll ever see, right? Yeah. And he says, uh, and I said, dude, that sounds like it sucks. You yeah. know, he's like, I don't know, man. It's probably pretty cool to have all that money and get to do what you want. And I'm like, dude, I'm driving around in a van hunting turkeys and hanging out with my friends. Like, I feel like I'm winning. Yeah, you, you know? are and, winning. And honestly, <laughs> honestly, dude, I I don't feel like I'm losing until I compare myself to other people. Yeah. Right? And I start yeah. getting in that, like, keeping up with the Joneses yeah. stuff. But if I'm just, if I'm really looking at, like what I like, like yeah. what me and Marianne like to do. It's like do rad stuff, talk to rad people, create things, and like hang out. I mean, you've been hearing me like all I talk about is things my daughter say. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, and I, but yeah, that's, you're right. I think about with uh, me and my buddy Jimmy, who we were turkey hunting last year, and it was, you know, like all the way up to this point, like it was, it was just like magical turkey hunting, right? Like we're yeah. just we're killing turkeys every day, right? And then we we go on the Willamette River, and we strike this bird up the first day we're in Oregon, and he like gobbles, and we set up, and we try and we try and bring him down into the timber, but he doesn't want to come. He like holds up, so we go, we hunt some private land, kill some birds, come back the next day, we go down in there, coming on this boat, and we're like, we got there maybe 15 minutes later than we wanted to. The sun was up, and we come around this peninsula, and that bird is on the edge. He's like 15 feet from the water with two hands, and he's just like full strut, right? We go around, we hide the boat, we crawl up in there. There's like this huge log that's kind of washed out underneath, right? So we set up on that. And we call this bird like three times and then shut up. Like 45 minutes later, this bird comes in, and we watch it for like 100 yards walk around and come into where the decoys was. And I, it's, uh, its head was... Its head was like uh, super, super pale blue, yeah. like the whole way yeah. in, you know. And it was yeah. gobbling the whole way, but it had a suit. It had a really soft gobble, so it sounded. If you didn't see it, you would think it was two hundred yards away, but it was like forty-five yards away, and it was coming and coming and coming, just like this beautiful, perfect thing. And I've thought so many times about that thing's blue head, yeah, just watching, you know, and, and the way we were set up, like. Jimmy could see one way and I could see the other way. So like he had to like whisper and describe what was happening until, you know, I could see it coming in part of the way and then it got to where I couldn't see it. Then Jimmy saw it and like Jimmy had to tell me when I could swing around yeah, and, you know, pull the gun up on it, yeah. dude. And it was the, it was the raddest thing. And we killed that bird. And then it was like a, it's like this kind of weather, like mm -hmm. beautiful, sunshiny, warm. And we, we just like we took some cool pictures and we just like hugged and we're like really happy. And then when we're boating out, I got that I got that bird on the front of the boat, right? And it's like iridescent, his feathers are flapping. And we like drive by the six pack of Canada geese, right? So they they pop up, you know, they take a second to they're big birds, so they got a flap. So they're kinda like staying even with us trying to get up. Mm -hmm. And then I look up and there's this bald eagle like right on top like right on top of us dude and i said man this is the greatest thing i've ever experienced in my life yeah, yeah. and yeah and like you know at that moment no place i'd rather be yeah uh 
as my kids get older, like it would be cool to share that stuff with them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, dude. Uh, so back, let's go back to the novels, man. Like, so how many novels are you in? How many novels have you published at this point? Uh, the f- the fifth novel will come out this summer. This okay. Yeah. Yeah. In August of, of 2023. And I mean, and they've all been like well received, right? Like critically. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've, I've been fortunate, uh, you know, to, to have most of my books, uh, especially critically. Yes. Uh, some of the books have sold, sold better than the others. Uh, but, but yeah, I think, uh, I've been really fortunate to, to find an audience, uh, you know, and I, and it's been a sustainable audience for me. Uh, I'm not a big risk. Th- I think a lot of writers are a risk for a publisher. I'm not a risk at all. Uh, like they, they're going to make their money back. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know that. And part of it's cause you know, they, you know, it's not some, it's not like I'm getting a seven figure advance or something, uh, or even a six figure advance. Um, but, but there's, I'm low risk. Which, for me, is nice because it means longevity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it's it's a sustainable it's a sustainable thing. Uh, I'm not gonna get rich probably, uh, but I don't have to. It's you know it's like you know I came out of playing music for so long and to me it sounds like you know the idea of an an indie musician, right? Like they're never gonna they might never have a just a huge you know, they're not going to have the Macarena, yeah. right? But I was always so impressed with people that could play for 20 years and pull, f- you know, 20 yeah. years after they were playing, they yeah. were pulling 500 people everywhere yeah. they went. Yeah. Like that's, that's, uh, to me, it's, it, it's even a little bit more valuable because, uh, it, it's kind of easy to turn somebody on for a second. Right. But yeah. for someone yeah. to take the ride with you. Yeah. And, and like really feel committed and you're also dealing with people that are compelled by you right so they're yeah. they're invested in you and uh in your storytelling like you know you might end up you ever seen misery <laughs> <laughs> you might no. end up like that dude <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> write uh, another book yeah let's hope not uh yeah <laughs> man i'm interested in uh like for I, I probably ain't supposed to ask you questions but i don't i don't follow you can do rules. whatever you want man so like I know how I wound up making the decision I made to to live the way that I live, like to sacrifice any type of financial security at all for uh, for a spiritual happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, like for me, and I and I told you this. Um, it, it for me, it was watching my father work himself to death at a very early age. I was fishing every day of my life, every single day of my life. And uh, and he he loved fishing, and but he was always, well, if I can get this done, if I can get that done. And I, I mean, when I was about 8, 10 years old, it was like, I'll never do that. I will never make that mistake. And, uh, you know, he was, all, he was one of those where it was, well, when I retire, I'll do this. Well, maybe you will, maybe you won't. Most people won't. Most people don't. Most people don't even live that long, yeah. Uh, especially now. Um, and so, as a very small kid, I made a very deliberate decision that I would never live my life like that. And to this day, I'm almost forty, and I ain't struck a lick yet. Uh, <laughs> so, so I'm just curious how you how you came to 
you know, me and you were talking about you and your father, mm-hmm. uh, and and how he said, you know, your one sister's a doctor, your other sister's a lawyer, and you want to go off and play Daniel Boone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so how do you how do you how did you reach that place? Mm. Yeah, and you know, I I think maybe I think I've actually recently settled into it. I mean, I was living that way, but I. I I think I finally got all right with it, and it's not that I don't. Uh, it's not. It's not that I, you know, would would not like uh, some financial security net. You know, especially now that I've got children, and uh, you know, I mean, it's even a deal where like I'm not even worth more. I'm actually worth more alive to my family than I am dead. Like a lot of people, like they die, they get an insurance payment. Like yeah. I'm worth more to them alive. Yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, so I've had this like tattoo on my arm for like 20 years, right? It's yeah. a contentment. And so I've kind of like, I've been like perpetually discontent, right? Yeah. Uh, and the places where I found peace was, uh, was like wrestling with words, right? And so for a long time it was like songs. Yeah. And there was like other stuff that came with that, right? Like yeah. there was, there was like getting to have fun and there was like drinking beer and there were girls and all that stuff, but. But that's not what I. That's not why I was doing it when I was at home by myself. You know, yeah. like yeah. hand rolling cigarettes and like staying up all night and trying to figure out the best way to say this or that. Yeah. Uh, I think that I've, without realizing it, I, I man, doing things because some asshole who I don't respect tells me I have to has always stuck in my craw and it's not about being just a contrarian it's that I, I'm I'm happy to follow rules I'm, I'm happy to uh, follow just rules I'm not I don't suffer fools lightly and I'm not willing I'm not willing to eat shit for the for the uh the promise somewhere in the ether of like some far off reward. Right. Uh, it's not that I need to have a huge reward now, but I, I'm more satiated by the, the sense of, uh, of doing something for myself. Like I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. It, 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 it's like, we talked about being anxious people, right? Like it calms my anxiety to know that, I found a way to do something, right? Yeah. And now I think I'm, I'm still struggling with it, you know, to some degree, but, or to a large degree, really. But I, you like almost everybody I know, like went to school and everything. Like they got way more money than me, man. But I don't want their life, and yeah. that's kind of what yeah. I realized. Yeah, like, dude, I would not trade this, and. uh that man, that's so interesting that you ask me that because it's it is something I wrestle with a lot. I used to yeah. tell Marianne all the time, and she thought this was crazy. I used to say, like, I'm gonna be rich. I know I'm gonna be a wealthy person, right? Yeah. And I thought that for a long time, and I think that like recently, maybe in the last year or two, I've just accepted that probably I'm not gonna be rich financially. Yeah. But I think I can have a hell of a rad life. And, yeah. And, yeah. And be and be all right with it. And I'll tell you something else, man. Like fighting fire, you know, it's something like 33 percent of firemen die within five years of retirement. They die from 
heart attacks, cancers real bad yep. in firefighters and shit, right? Yep. Uh, and when I when I heard that, and then I saw some dudes that, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you're talking about 55, you're dead by 60, right? Yep. And you're broke down. You just beat your body up. I mean, you're not climbing it. You're not going to be six years old climbing some mountain hunting elk, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, dude, what the hell's the point? Yeah. yeah, You know, like, yeah. what's the point of eating shit and breaking your body down for some people that don't care? And then when COVID hit and you saw all these people that w- were just, I mean, they had it smashed into their brain that they were just, they were just pawns in this game. Yeah. And all that shit were like, you know, this business is a family. That business is not your family. Yeah. And they don't <laughs> care about you. And they will, they, they will, they will, uh, they will destroy you and sell you to the rendering plant when it comes yeah. down to it, right? <laughs> like, why not try and get some living done while you can? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's for me, I think, and it's because we're both, you know, artists. Uh, but it's the idea that, uh, like, for me, some of the most valuable things is like I think about the things that I've created and and lives that they've affected. Mm. So with the novels, like I can think of, instantly, I can think of the best moment I've ever had as a writer, uh, and it was in France. And this little old man came up to me and didn't speak a word of English, and so I had a translator and we're talking, and he just starts crying, and he's crying his eyes out over this novel that I've that I've written. And he had he had taken trains for hours to get there to meet me, and and I was just like the idea that that I could have created something that impacted him in that kind of way um, was like one of the most power. It told me that I'm doing that every decision I've made is you know that I'm currently making is right. Uh, and yeah, the, the, you, you mattered to someone that you didn't even know. Correct. There was value. There was value in what I tried to create. Uh, you know, and I and so I think, and that's something. That's a purpose-driven life that that I think a whole lot of people really really wish that that they could experience. And the sad reality is that all the stuff they're doing matters to nobody. Uh, you know, I think about my dad shoveling papers his whole fucking life, his whole fucking life, from one stack to the other, from the other stack to the other. It was like Joe versus the volcano. Mm-hmm. Like at the end, you know, I mean, there's that there's that moment in that movie where Tom Hanks looks at the light bulbs right before he quits, and he says, "I feel like they're sucking my eyeballs out," and I and I can remember my father coming home and looking like that, right? Yeah, like sitting there shoveling it from here to here. All day, back and forth, back and forth, and it didn't matter to no damn body. The work didn't matter. His everything else about my father mattered tremendously, and and he did have other things that that impacted people's lives, but the work didn't. Yeah, it's death of a salesman, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Like this dude, you you're measuring yourself by the wrong rubric. Yeah, and like, so for me, the work has to the work that we do has to matter, uh, and. And so it's a it's this balancing act of of like the work you know the work having a purpose and at the same time skating by so that we can go uh, you know sit in the field and watch birds. <laughs> uh, dude, I'll tell you, man. You sent me a uh, you sent me like an 
an Instagram message. Uh, and it was like, man, I don't remember all of it. I just remember there's like one line in it, dude. And it, you said, you said you and Hal Herring are my two favorite people to listen to. Yeah. And I was like, it was validating in such a way, dude. I was like, holy shit, dude. Because that conversation you and him had is one of the best podcast conversations I've I've ever listened to. Oh man, that's and, awesome. Uh, and Hal, like I don't. I've listened to lots of podcasts through the years, usually quit at some point, mm -hmm. uh, and me and you have talked about that and why you quit. Um, but, but I always listen to how, and it's because of how deeply he's, uh, he's thinking about things, uh, how slow he is to process his answers and his questions. Mm. Uh, he's sitting with it. Uh, and the other thing is that he's leading meaningful conversations. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the same thing that you're that you're trying to do. I mean, dude, this whole podcast is a Hal Heron impersonation. <laughs> I, I thought about. It, I mean, dude, it really is. You're, you're gonna have to talk deeper, Man, and gravelly. <laughs> have you ever read? <laughs> no, dude. Like I thought and thought and thought about doing a podcast, and when I actually started it, and I'd I'd had the podcast equipment for a long time. I did that podcast with him, and he. Him and Newcomb, both. I've done quite a few podcasts now, and those two dudes are really good at getting the best out of the person that yeah, they're interviewing. Yeah, yeah. And so, man, like, app, I'm telling you straight up, man, the first podcast I did with this dude named Josh Raggio, who's a duck call maker in Mississippi, man, I was literally doing a Hal Heron impersonation. <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to ask, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and ask stuff that I think Hal would ask. Uh, and eventually, you know, I've like found my own voice, man. But dude, I mean, that dude is a, is a seminal American voice. And I yeah. don't just mean like the way he sounds. I mean, yeah. just yeah. as yeah. a impactful person. Yeah. Uh, yeah, dude. Okay. You were asking that question about like, how do you do this point where like you were willing to basically you're willing to be broke, but like get to do cool shit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm. Uh, I'm in Montana and like, dude, he lives in this little tiny town, like 200 people. Like it, it kind of, you know, very analogous in many ways to small places in the Delta, but like the landscape, you know, there's like no trees for 50 miles. It's like way, way, way up on the North range. Right. And, uh, we got, he's got, he's got kind of that like ubiquitous, like mid nineties, green Chevy Silverado, you know, that like mm -hmm. everybody had. Or not Silverado, I guess it was just like a 1500. Uh, and we were driving around, and he's like telling me the history of like these Native American battles and mm -hmm. uh, the, the things that have happened in this area. And, and I'm looking at it, and we're like standing out there and stop, man, and maybe you know, you know, drink a beer or something. And I was, dude, I was like, this is the coolest shit ever, man. You know how many yeah. people? And then I went to Rendezvous, uh, BHA Rendezvous, and I was like, you know how many people at BHA Rendezvous wish they were doing this? Yeah. And then I go do this, and then we go back to his house. We eat black-eyed peas and elk steaks, you know, <laughs> drink some beers, drink some whiskey or whatever, and then I go out to my van and, like, sleep in his backyard. Yeah. And then get up the next morning, and I sit in his living room, which is, like, just stacks of books with, like, these old bison skulls he's found and, like, yeah. the riverbanks, and, like, sit and talk with him and his wife and drink, like, a whole pot of coffee. Yeah. Like that—that's yeah. something I'll carry with me forever. 
Yeah. Right? And that's, I mean, that's better than having $20,000 to go to Disney World. Yeah. And it, and, and the, th- most people would say, well, that's not sustainable. Uh, and the truth is I know some, I know some people who've done it a very long time that, that, you know, fellow that I kind of consider, you know, one of my best friends, Raymond Bunn, that gunsmith, mm-hmm. his wife always jokes. And she said, you found a way to be good at every single thing that doesn't make money. Yeah. And that, yeah. and that's, and that's him, uh, you know, and Raymond was always, uh, trying to skate by to the next season. And he was, a, he was a grouse man. Uh, you know, he called them pheasants, but um, he's a grouse man through and through. And when when that when grouse was on, he wasn't. He's walking. Mm-hmm. You know, he's covering ground, and that's what he lived for. Uh, and and Raymond's at retirement age now, and he's still doing the same thing he was doing. You know, thirty forty years ago. Well, there's a freedom uh, to it, right? Yeah, and that it's indicative of it's indicative of the best parts of the american spirit and even what you're talking about like with ducks right ducks are a a complicated thing there's way too much machismo and wiener wagon especially in arkansas uh and you hear you know people talk about man like smashing up birds and we stack them up blah blah but what you just said about that you said he's a grouse man you said he's walking yep right there is a there is a uh, a way of absorbing the world around you through that's impacted by by the way you're moving in it right and so like we came I mean, people came for a long way to come down here right yeah and uh i mean we killed two sandhill cranes in two days right yep. just like today they just like weren't flying you could hear them a little bit but they just weren't doing the thing right i don't think there's anybody that came to this that feels that this was not like utterly successful, right? If we hadn't have killed, if we hadn't have killed them, right? If we'd have, if we hadn't uh, shot either of those birds, uh, it has still been like like for me. It was that I don't know uh, I don't know anything about what you do. Uh, as far as like waterfowl and stuff sure. like that, the only experience I've ever had shooting anything off the wing is a handful of doves and you know uh, and and stuff like that. So for me, it was wanting to learn things. I ain't ever seen a bird work over decoys. And them three, when they got to the end of that field and they made that turn, and dude, they, when they come back, they were working. And I I don't know what they saw. Maybe who knows? But it might have been me. I don't know. Oh, uh, uh, the end when they flared. Yeah, when yeah. they flared off. Uh, but to me, you know, and, and we didn't kill any of them, them birds. Uh, if that was all that happened, I'm happy. Watching them break is a – see, you, you're keen on the right stuff, man. You know, breaking is means, like, they're going one way. Oh, he we, turned. You hit them with a call, and they turn. They come yeah. and pay attention. Oh, to yeah. That's a, that's a massive success, right? Getting them – like, ducks will do that, and they call it, like, working corners. Like, they basically do circles, but you hit them with a call on the corners, right? Yeah. Like, you're, bl- you're, you're calling with this oh, – dude, that's awesome. <laughs> this sandhill crane down and just blew in the, the door of this bunkhouse that we're at. Uh, it's just floating around. Uh, getting them to break – the bird's traveling, and then you rang, rang, rang. You turn him, and he turns. And then he gets to the next corner, and you break him again, and he turns. You know, yeah. dude, you are you are interacting with the world on a on an intimate and spiritual and like visceral level, right? And watch it, and and 
the other thing that would have made me happy watching you try to learn that call oh uh, yeah, yeah because of how how like i could sense how excited you were trying to figure it out right yeah uh, sure and like i'm obsessed with turkey calls yeah so so the whole idea calls interests me i you know i love fooling I, i'm too obsessed with is that what your is, is that like one of your favorite parts of turkey hunting is it talking to him mm. yeah I, th I think it's that um it's the but it's just the sound of them uh like honestly if they gobbled like that if they gobbled and you'll hear them in winter gobble uh you know whatever but if they gobbled like that all year i'd be useless like i'd literally go live in the woods and that's all i'd do like the minute they start gobbling at the house i don't miss it i don't miss a sunrise uh birds don't typically uh gobble when they go up to roost where i live not not very often anyway but when they're gobbling of a morning i don't miss a morning uh you know typically they're going at my house they're going to start somewhere kind of late march but they're going to go you know kind of till the end of may and i i'm not missing it um but i also think i was so i've been so obsessed with those birds that i got really really interested in uh the history of things mm -hmm. the uh, you know and maybe partly because that with other types of hunting you know you you're a lot of times following a different tradition so like lots of bird hunting not necessarily ducks uh, but like quail or something like that there's a lot of like english things and all of these other histories mm, that kind of tie like, into I like this. where you're getting to and, yeah. and and turkey hunting is the uh like that is an american phenomenon yeah solely an american phenomenon yeah. originally a native american phenomenon you know that's the reason yelpers interest me so much like that's the oldest game call in the in the world so you're talking right? about you're talking about wing bone calls yeah by yeah another name yeah um well i use i say yelper because like uh like a wing bone's a yelper a jordan is a yelper a trumpet is a yelper okay all of those calls are yelpers but uh you know but a jordan's not a trumpet and a trumpet's not a wing bone uh so it's like a family of calls okay and they're all tied to a lineage, but like that lineage interests the hell out of me, right? Uh, you know, knowing how that how that developed. So like you got a a call that's thousands of years old, a three stage call, you know, made from the from the wing bones of a turkey, uh, and then you have a man Charles Jordan who looks at that and he and he alters it and it becomes two sections of river cane and a hem bone mouthpiece. Uh, and then you jump forward to 1917, and Tom Turpin makes the 1917 style call, which is still a three-stage call, but he's making the middle sections out of wood, and he's turning the end. Then he goes to a 1920 call, and the whole barrel's turned, but it's still him bone mouthpiece. And then you go to 1930, and you've basically got a modern trumpet. But you've got this evolution of, of something uh, happening that that I find cool as shit, Right? Like, uh, like I'm really obsessed with like Roanoke calls and it's because it ties to North Carolina. Uh, and I, I really like Simon, like Simon Everett's book is my favorite book on turkeys. And again, it's cause it ties to North Carolina. Uh, but I like, and what's odd about all of that is I'm not interested in history in really any other way. Like, really? Like I try to be like the stuff Hal talks about, I find it 
incredible that he knows all of that. I couldn't read that book. I just, and I've tried mm -hmm. for whatever reason, like, uh, history, most history, even if I do find it interesting, right. Or like, I want to know about it. I can't wade through it. It's like my brain just is like, eh, I can't do it. But for some reason, turkey, turkey hunting history and turkey call history, uh, interests the hell out of me. Do you feel that? You know, and look, I've probably got some, I've got some, like, you know, slightly, uh, probably reductionistic and uh, romanticized version of, like, where you live, right? Yeah. But you saying that, it it, it kind of makes me wonder, like, do you feel that, do you feel that you uh, exist in a place that is kind of timeless like which like you're up there in the mountains doing similar things to like what european settlers did 300 years ago native americans did 5000 years ago and there's like a it, it's not that it's static but that it's uh perpetual yeah i th i think i so why i kind of you know became a part of that place was because, uh, you know, I didn't grow up in Jackson County. I grew up down around the Catawba River Basin, you know, where all my family's been, you know, for forever. Um, and I watched the place that I had been born disappear. Like, it's not there. We can't go there. We can go to my parents' house, but the place that I grew up isn't there. It's, that, Ger it's, it? it's that Gertrude Stein idea of, of there is no there there. Uh, yeah, it was developed. Uh, you know, it, it's gone, uh, and and other people have moved in. And when I wound up in Jackson County, what I wound up immediately recognizing were that there were all of these people who valued uh, the things that my family had valued for a very long time. They reminded me of the people that I had grown up around and respected and valued. And I think I attached myself to that first uh, was was people uh and landscape um like that place still holds story like and what i mean by that is like uh i can remember all right so i told you i was friends with all these firemen i can remember standing in a in a curve one day at a wreck and uh you know these firemen are working this wreck and these two or three old firemen are just standing there kind of you know waving traffic doing this doing that and one of them looks down at the river and he says you remember that night that bus went into the river and the other two looked at him they all started remembering this story right and it was that that particular spot in that river held story it was like it was rooted there uh that entire landscape's like that and the people that are there still know it uh and currently it's disappearing in the same way that it's disappearing everywhere you know if you if you went to montana and talked to native montanans they they would say the same thing well these people are moving in and sure, it's all going away sure. it you go to france they tell you the same thing same thing uh it's happening all over and i think i'm just they will have to drag me tooth and nail out of that place uh you know i'm not leaving ha, but man so i wonder hasn't that always happened hasn't there I always think, been that i think that the, cycle i think the 
the history of all places is a story of displacement, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, so the land that where I live, that was Cherokee land, you know, still is Cherokee land. You know, I butt up to, to the Koala boundary. Uh, you know, I'm within spitting distance of the Gadua Mound, which is the birthplace of the Cherokee. But now um, people think of Cherokees as Oklahoma, you know? Well, yeah. Yeah, and they are. That's the Western band, you know, and, and they, but where they came from. Well, is, no, that's, is, I mean, that's, as I understand it, that's because they were forced out of yeah, there and yes, they were the marched over there. Correct. Yeah, yeah. They wound up in Oklahoma, but the ones who hit out, it stayed, uh, and where they came from is still yeah. right there. Uh, I did this thing for PBS. Well, it was that link I sent you, mm-hmm. and uh, they basically asked me. You know that that you know filmmaker asked me. He said, "I want you to tell the story of the place that you write about." And I told him, "I said that's not my story to tell, but I said I'll let me introduce you to the people whose it is." And so I took him and let him talk to a Cherokee novelist named Annette Sanook Clapsaddle, and she took him to Gadua Mound. Uh, I took one of the oldest churches in that county is an old black AME church. I took him there, um, you know, and let him talk to that community and what's left of that community because it's very little now. Uh, you know, I took him and, and let him talk to Rame, and I, I, I took him and let him talk to someone whose family land has just gone away and is no longer existent and when when he i had no intent other than introducing him to these people and letting them tell their stories and at the end that was that realization was that what i just told you is that the the history of all places is a story of displacement every one of them was saying the same exact thing uh from a different perspective and from a different timeline so yes i think you're absolutely right i think there's there's inevitably a turning of the tide and uh and I think it's a like there was a moment where I wondered, I wondered, is the only reason I care is it because it's my people? And then I thought, no, it pisses me off equally when it's the gentrification of, of you know, a black community where I grew up. Uh, you know, a historical black community that was ripped apart and gentrified and those people were forced out and they were gone. Um it's that, you know, I think about the city of Asheville and the city of Asheville is this old, everybody loves everybody, everybody come. Well, there were all kinds of historic black neighborhoods there. What happened to those and where are those people? Uh, mm. Those people were forced out. And so I think, and that pisses me off equally as much as, as what I'm witnessing. And so I think for me, um, what it is, is that we get this just diluted uh kind of uh everything is becoming the same and we are losing culture at a staggering rate and that's what that's what unnerves me most uh is we're losing the foods we're losing the language we're and and this is happening everywhere it's not just happening there and that's for me that's what uh that's what eats me up and really, if you get to the heart of what I'm doing in my novels, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm writing about. Uh, you know, that's that's what all of it is about. Um, and yeah, I just, I think I think you're absolutely right that it's inevitable. Uh, and I think it's absolutely right to say it's ugly as fuck. Like it's just, uh, it's ugly to witness, uh, mm. to watch a place just 
lose everything that defined it because it was beautiful. Like it was beautiful. The food, the light, like there are things like the, people, people where I'm from at the South end of that County, they'd say the word they, and they'd mean it like an exclamation of disbelief. Like you, like you call me two weeks from now and you say, Dave, you ain't gonna believe this. My wife left me. They say they like T H E Y. They, yeah, and it was a shortening of they, Lord, they, Lord, have mercy. And it just kept dialing back until it was they. Yeah. Well, to me, that's like, I love that, right? Like, I love all of those things. Uh, it's like uh, where we ate boudin last night, right? Mm -hmm. It's like that. Like, that ain't my culture. I don't know shit about boudin. Nobody says boudin where I live. Uh I dig it though. It's good though, yeah. You're yeah. damn right it's good. And it's what makes a place it's it's what makes a place uh what it is, you know. I think where I live, people and landscape are, are an inseparable thing. Uh and in most place in Arkansas it would be that way. In sure. the Delta it would be that way. And I I do not want to live in a place of homogeny. Like that's that's it. I yeah, don't want it. Yeah. I want to go to New York, and I want them to listen to how I talk and think, God damn, I didn't understand a word he said, right? And I want to listen to them, and I go home, and I say, I don't know what they was, what they were even talking about, you know? I want places to have all of that. Uh, like, that's the world I want to live in. You know, man, like, when Marianne and I moved out, moved back from the country and moved back into Little Rock, you know, like, we moved to this specific part of town, Right, like, I'm not trying to tell everybody where I live, but like, I live on the, uh, I live on the south side of 6:30, right? And 6:30 is this highway that's like the dividing line, yeah. Right, and it's not just like dividing line, like white and black. It's like, uh, you know, just like uh, economic resources, all that stuff, right? Yeah. And we we were like real intentional about where we pick to live. And so when I take my kids to school in the morning, it's one of the things I think about. Like, there's a lot of, you know, like I drive by some buildings that are like, you know, disrepaired, dilapidated, right? Like, uh, you know, you do see poverty. Uh, like, you drive by a couple homeless shelters and, you know, there's like panhandlers and, and you know, people walking to catch the bus and, uh, you know, people that walk for as a means of transport, not as like recreation, you know, yeah, like they yeah. do in the suburbs. And, uh, you know, without being voyeuristic about it, uh, you know, there's like, there's like lots of food trucks and, and, and not like fancy, uh, fancy high dollar food trucks. Like, like where we ate today. Yeah. Or yeah. It's like lots of, uh, Hispanic like taco trucks and, like black people on the back of a trailer selling barbecue and stuff yeah. or yeah. like certain times of year, like there'll be dudes selling like buffalo fish and whatever. Yeah. yeah. And what I like about it, even though there's like frustrating stuff about it, mostly Dodge Chargers. Yeah. Which I cannot <laughs> stand Dodge Chargers. Uh, but it's just like, it feels alive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, um, there, there's a taste to it and it, you know, there's a little bit of a funk to it. Like, yeah. yeah. Sometimes there's like a, a a bit of a bitter taste to it, but it's just alive. And you know, yeah, man. The the past. We talked about like uh, the, the idea of like things being pasteurized. Yeah. 
I just I'm not into stuff that's pasteurized, right? Like yeah, I I'm want sure I want a little funk on stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm not looking to like live in a dangerous place. I don't feel like I live in a dangerous place. Like yeah. I'm not worried about going to the grocery store, or the post office, or anything like that. But yeah, man, you know, I want. That bird's better once it's set in the refrigerator. For yeah, a week. yeah, man. Exactly, <laughs> dude. That's exactly what it is, man. Uh, ooh, so that's a good segue into this. So we uh, and we're me and my my friend Matt Rowe working on this video project right now. Right. So part of it was we came down here. Uh, people colloquially call uh, they they reference speckle belly geese, which I've kind of like like gone hard at for four or five years. Uh, as far as hunting, that's like the primary species I've been hunting. They refer to them as ribeye of the sky, right? But they also do that with sandhill cranes. They call them the ribeye yeah. of the sky. And so I brought a speck down here uh, that it sat in the fridge for <laughs> four or five days because I wanted to compare them. Yeah. Uh, and I and so then we did like kind of a we did a taste test with everybody, and you were the person that had the right answer. You and me had the right answer, which was at those <laughs> which was at those geese. They're both great. Oh yeah, they're both but those, delicious. Those geese are better. Those geese edge yeah. out, and it's the yeah. fat and the skin. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like those sandhill cranes are incredibly lean. Yeah, but like that fat and that, uh, you know, like uh, you ever see like a dog like lick its chops. Yeah, like, <laughs> like that goose will make you do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, skin on it's substantial. It, to me, it was substantially better. Yeah, even you know what? Even skin off. Like ducks and geese, they've got yeah. a, they've just got that little bit of funk. Like yeah. it's, it 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 tastes a lot like beef, but there's, you know, this yeah, is it's something not that, exactly. Yeah, yeah, this is a this is a critter that exists in the in between between like the sky and uh, a terrestrial existence in the water, right? And yeah. there's just like a, it's not brackish, but it's uh, there's an intersection in yeah. within it, right? Yeah, and. And I guess, actually, man, everything I just said, I guess the damn cranes do too, man. Yeah. But they just don't taste quite as good. You know, yeah. I said it's like it's like A plus and A minus. Yeah. Uh, but I just appreciated that you got the right answer. <laughs> because Lindsay and Bianca tried to say it was those cranes. And, uh, well, in her defense, she made a hell of a good shot on the crane she shot. Yeah, so, yeah. So maybe that was swaying her. Yeah, she might be slightly. And look, maybe I'm slightly biased because yeah. I've killed a lot of specs. But, yeah. I, I, dude, I just... It's why I like bear meat, man. Yeah. You know, like, that's what's missing from a lot of wild game is, like, the fat, like, the grease, yeah. like, the yeah. licking your chops. Absolutely. And people do all this stuff to try and achieve it. They're sous vide and yeah. all this other stuff, man. But, like, there's no substitution for just, you know, fat that a critter grew. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And especially fat that's, like, I mean, like, I'm not trying to eat deer tallow. Yeah. yeah. But, man. Them them jokers are good. We're actually about to make we're gonna make sandhill crane tamales with a, and people will also tell you that like you can't eat the legs and thighs off of sandhill cranes. Well, they're about to learn, dude. That's <laughs> the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, you could cook if you cook something like you did, like when you threw them in that pot and got them cooking last night. Uh, you could cook any. There's very few things that you couldn't cook like that, and them turn out not turn out good. You know, and I slept in there last night. This this cabin we're in is kind of split in half, uh, and Jonathan and Matt are on one side, and I'm on the other, and the stove's on that other side. And so all night I sat there and, and you know, s smelled them them legs cooking down. Uh, 
and I woke up mouth watering. Dude, they're you know, all through the good. night. They're fixing it to be good. You know, I didn't think about it. We got this little wood burn stuff. That would have added a little layer of authenticity mm. if I cooked it on that. But uh, I'm glad someone that could smell someone that was smelling it appreciated it. Yeah. Uh, well, I know Matt said to try and keep it an hour. We're going to go like a couple minutes longer because. And I didn't want to like jump into this, but this is like super cool, dude. So you've like had one of your books optioned and made into a movie. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, starring Arkansan, Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. You know, he's from he's from Benton, Arkansas, which okay. is like Benton is 20 minutes from Little Rock. Okay. Uh, and so it's Billy Bob Thornton and Robin, Robin Wright. Yeah. Who are like the. The stars of it, yeah. When and her son is her son is Hopper Penn, which was her and Sean Penn's yeah. son. Uh, and he's he's another one of the oh cool big dude. folks in it. Yeah. So uh, so how does that go down, man? Like you're in the mountains writing a book, and so yeah. like first of all, like which book is it? And then how does it go from you writing a book and and you know and and yeah. listening to every turkey gobble all spring long yeah. to I mean, this is like a, this is like a major motion picture, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was. Um, it's where all light tends to go. Uh, was the novel, uh, and the way those things work is that you know, if I've had one you know conversation, I've had two hundred with with people who will call you from Hollywood, and they're they tell Hollywood is is uh, you know the place where all really good used car salesmen must wind up uh and <laughs> yeah, so you yeah. know you listen to all these people and you get off the phone and early on every conversation you had it was like oh yeah this is gonna be it and uh you never hear from them people again but but with this one uh you know it was it was optioned uh and it was actually optioned for probably five years um a guy named robert Knott wrote the adaptation um and the odds of anything getting greenlit, anything, uh, are are pretty slim to none. Uh, and and it just so happened that that you know it eventually uh, they got enough people to sign on. I think you know Robin signed on pretty early, um, and and they had a they had someone they wanted to direct, uh, Ben Young, uh, who's who's from Australia. Uh, but they had all of these people, and so they slowly built this team of people who wanted to see this get done, uh, and and then eventually it got greenlit. Um, for me, it's super cool, right? And I'm super grateful that it happened. Um, I have no intention of watching it, right? Uh, and most people think that sounds crazy. And for me, it's because... The book is what the book is, right? I think there's a possibility that I could one day come to completely separate the two mm. to where it wouldn't affect me one way or the other, what they did. Uh, but right now, that book still, uh, that story, I think, I, I think I'm unable to make that separation. And they're going to have to be two different things, right? Like if I, if I had given you that novel, uh, back when you were writing so many songs, and I said, Jonathan, you're gonna you're gonna read this novel and you're gonna write a, an album, and it's gonna be uh, a sound. You know, all of these songs trying to capture all of these same things that are happening in this novel. Uh, the album you created could have been absolutely equally beautiful to the novel, and it could have also been entirely different, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, I don't know what medium your wife works in, but uh, but if it was a let's say it was a painter and you had them read a novel, you said paint a painting that's that's this novel. The painting might be beautiful, but the painting's not the novel. Like it, it can't it can't be right. Um, and so for me, uh, that's kind of you know where I am. I've also always been a writer who just stayed in my lane. I'm a human who stays in my lane. You ask me something, you say. You know anything about this? I probably, unless it's turkeys, flatheads, uh, white-tailed deer in the pine flats of South Carolina or something, I probably say no. I don't know nothing about that. Um, but there are things that I that I do know that I do well, and one of them's write novels. And so for me, I just stick with the novels. And if something like that happens, that's really cool. Uh, but it doesn't affect what I'm doing. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. No, 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 no. I'm not. Man. I'm not. I mean, I get it. I, yeah. I mean, I really do get it. Uh, yeah. it. It's. I'm also just. I'm sitting here thinking, like, you know, you've got five novels. You, you're going to Europe. Uh, your your books being made into a movie, and it's. Uh, and yeah, like with all of that. Like the money still doesn't come, right? Yeah. So, yeah. What the hell's the point of chasing it, right? Like, if you can have that yeah. level, of, what, if you can have that level of success, and still be poor, yeah. Then, it's, then what the hell's the point, dude? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. You might as well, you might as well catch catfish and like love yep. every day. Yep, and wait for you to come in April and shoot turkeys. Oh, dude, we're doing. We should. Uh, <laughs> when are the like where I'm at, man. Like catfish, like you know, and I'm I'm I don't catch very many flatheads. I catch uh, channels blues and channels, blues. Yeah. yeah. But you know they're spawning. Uh, they're spawning like early summer. When yeah. do those flatheads spawn? I see them start trying to make that shift. Now I'm not saying they're spawning, but I'm saying they start to make a considerable shift soon as the water starts warming up. Uh, I would say that they're spawning in. Late April, May there okay, would be my guess. Uh, and that's a guess. I'm not a biologist. No, that's But they're making a shift. And I, and I noticed the shift start in March. Like that's when those fish start coming out of winter beds mm-hmm. and start moving shallower. I don't have a boat. I'm a bank fisherman. Yeah. I've always been a bank fisherman. Um, and so that's when those fish start coming up in and, and really gorging and getting ready uh for the spawn uh and then there comes a you know yeah i'd I'd say which is bad for me right because that coincides (laughs) and i care a whole hell of a lot more about turkeys than i do uh flatheads or anything (laughs) dude that's my favorite time to fish catfish is like late march yeah yeah Uh, oh yeah when that water those first warm spells like it's like boom it's like and they, it's like they can sense it, you know that it that they're there, and shit they start gorging and man, themselves. Man, there's a you know there's a vibrancy to new growth. Yep. Like just like a kind of striking green. Yep. That you're like surrounded by, you know. So like what I I like, I like uh, floating little skinny bayous and running limb lines, right? And yeah. like travel like two miles down. Yep. And like go all the way down and run 30 lines and then, you know, come back up and maybe you catch one or two on the way back, but then you come back the next day and maybe you got 15 or something, right? Yeah. Uh, and 
I like I like catching the fish as much as I like just being in the place, right? I mean, I like yeah. being in the place more than I like catching the fish, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they. But you know what's weird, man? It's like you catch them, you start catching them in like March and April, especially the females, man, like big and fat and full of eggs, yeah. and then you catch them in June, July. Yeah. And man, it's it's like seeing a seeing like a buck deer after the rut, man. Oh like yeah, they yeah, are beat the hell up. They are wore out, yeah. dude. Like yeah. you feel you kind of feel bad sometimes because yeah. like they have big heads and skinny bodies and yeah. stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I try not, to, you know, I'll I'll keep a big one every now and then, but if I know it's full of eggs, I usually try and let it stay in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But now I've started doing this thing where you like cure the cure the row sacks. Yeah. Yeah. And like smoke them, and then you can like grate them up on uh-huh. stuff. And so, like, I do, I would do, I want to catch some fish that are like full of eggs, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's, you know, it's also catfish. Like, they ain't hurting. I don't know yeah. that a catfish is hurting anywhere in no, no. <laughs> the lower 48. Yeah. That fella that made that knife for you. Uh, Beautiful way, knife, man. Well, he's, a, he's this German fella, right? And he eats damned anything, right? Yeah. I mean, you name it, he's eat it. And uh, he starts telling me about it opening up his fish right and he said it's just got the prettiest eggs you've ever seen just black he said it looked like caviar you know i mean just black eggs mm-hmm. it was a gar all right are those poisonous eggs well he didn't know that and so he tells this whole long story about pulling these out he said it's the prettiest eggs you've ever seen in your life and he tells uh you know about about eating it on some crackers and it damn near killed him really uh, yeah yeah it damn near killed him and he says, I don't remember, he said it was maybe a month or so later. Uh, he was reading a book or in a magazine or something, and it had a feature on Gar, and he said it was this kind of a side, you know, over in this in this cut box on the side, and it's like uh, talking about how you can eat them and whatnot, and it said, but whatever you do, don't eat the row. It was like one bite of it's deadly. <laughs> Dude, so he just got like super sick on oh, it. Oh yeah, sick, <laughs> sick from both ends. He said he he said he thought he's dying. Dude, I, from what I, I think it's what I've heard is like, uh, and there's probably something about them being these old prehistoric fish, but like uh, gar and uh, grinnel. What do you, or I like don't know that bowfin. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, I th- I think they're supposed to be. Okay. Like the eggs are supposed to be dangerous, huh. but also, man, like there ain't many people keeping the eggs. I mean, no, nah, <laughs> you don't know. Nobody's eating eggs. Yeah, yeah, but dude, there. I've got a friend that uh, made caviar out of crappie eggs. Yeah, yeah. She said it wasn't that great, huh. but uh, I mean, a lot of those fish eggs too. Like in that application, that's more of like a textural thing, like that popping in your mouth. You yeah. know. Yeah. But dude, it's also cool. Like, and, you know, I like I like people knowing, like, dude, that dude will fucking turn catfish eggs into something worth eating. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Or at least that he tried it. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. He gave it old old college effort. Yeah. And I think that a similarity between us is, and everybody who's who's doing those things, those types of things is that, you know, you've gone and you've found this animal and it's always this odd thing to love something that much and then take its life. Yeah. Uh, and the the best thing you can do is, is consume all of it. Uh, if you hadn't have took them legs off them cranes and done what you done, they would have went in the cooler and they'd have went to my house, you yeah. know, and I'd have cooked them in a Wagner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, same, same thing. I mean, I just can't believe that most of those things end up in a road. Yeah. Ditch. I mean, do we plucked them? Like no one plucked sandhill cranes. 
And like you're saying, dude, it looks every bit of a turkey. Oh yeah, very similar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and like, dude, we pulled we pulled the legs and thighs off of two birds, and they're throwing the legs off him. You know, nobody yeah. nobody's keeping turkey legs. Dude, they're great, man. Yeah. Oh hell yeah, they're great. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, look, dude, a turkey breast is something pretty awesome, dude. But yeah, yeah, man, like braising down some turkey legs dude mm-hmm. you can do I'd, ra- I'd rather have that would you really oh yeah i'd rather have that dude i don't know man old pickle brine turkey breast fried up man yeah. that's pretty damn good yeah uh but you know that's kind of like that's like one of the only things i like that i think like the high grade meat is is just like the best like on ducks geese i like the legs and the thighs better than i like the breasts Deer, huh. deer. I like the necks and yeah, the shanks too. better. Yeah, my neck especially. Uh, but yeah, man, on the turkeys, man. And you know what it is too is that it's just like, it's uh, it, it's just like it's, it's as close to store bought meat as you can get. And sometimes it's just nice to have that 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 fam- especially when you're you're like living off a wild game, man. Like that familiarity to yeah to the way it the way i was before yeah. right is yeah. is is really nice man uh yeah. yeah dude i like an old turkey breast man i'm telling you man turkey breast pickle pickle brine it double double dredge it fry that sucker up eat it like take sriracha honey and mayonnaise and mix it up and dip that and eat those more crinkle cut fries <laughs> buddy <laughs> yeah you ain't beating that old coca-cola in a glass bottle <laughs> man Except for these tamales, we're about to go make. Dude, yeah, I think we're about to. Uh, I think we're about to make something good. We better go do this because, uh, you know, we gotta we gotta film it, so we gotta we gotta use this light. But uh, yeah. so, David Joy, uh, you said your fifth novel is coming out soon, right? Yep, yep. Those we thought we knew it'll come out in August of 2023. And then, uh, so books available everywhere, right? Yeah, Amazon yeah, and all the bookstores yeah, and all that stuff. To get a book, you could get it. And do you know when that movie's coming out? I don't. I, th- I think they were going to try to release it uh, at South by Southwest. So that's kind March, of a yeah. Right? Uh, so somewhere Turkey around season, that, dude. I ain't going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I ain't going. Um, but yeah, and then I, I don't know how eventually it'll be distributed. If it'll be like a theater film, or if it'll go to something like Netflix or yeah, or something. I don't have any idea. Uh, I'll be in the woods chasing birds. Man, well, how to? You've actually got like a. <laughs> You know, for like this uh, kind of self-professed like troglodyte man, like living in the woods, you got like a pretty interesting Instagram account. So, like, what's the uh, what's the handle on that? So, like, people I think can follow I think you. on every on Twitter or on Instagram or anything, I think all of them, Facebook, whatever, it's David Joy underscore author. Okay. Yep. Uh, I think that's on all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Which that's easier to do than. Uh, I would much rather interact with the world through that than I would face to face most of the time. You know what I'm saying? There you, uh, go. you know, uh, I'm a pretty anxious and and uh, uh, I stay by myself. Dude, I, I do I do think, man. Like I used to think that you had to to live really hard and painfully to create art, which I don't believe anymore. But yeah. I do think that anxiety is a is a bonus for making art <laughs> because do you know what I mean? Like, because if you're content, there's no need to try and make something different and change things, right? Yeah. yeah. So you, you got to be like a little freaked out. But yep. uh, yep. well, Absolutely. shit, dude. Seriously, man, I'm I'm super stoked you came down here, dude. This has been a 
this has been a fucking ball, man. Yeah, and, I've uh, loved it. Yeah, and uh, I will be, I will be in North Carolina, and we're gonna kill a mountain bird. Yes, sir. And then we're gonna find you bear to shoot. Well, not, not in the springtime, but yeah, no, yeah <laughs> later yeah, on yeah. <laughs> in the season. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, David, thanks so much for coming. And absolutely, folks, thanks for listening. Until next time. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening all the way through to this episode of the Black Duck Revival Podcast. As always, produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and the indomitable Brian Sachs. Info, what I'm up to, what I'm doing, can be found at the website. That's blackduckrevival.com or go on over to Instagram. That handle is just Black Duck Revival. Turkey Tour will be here before you know it. Uh, we will be in West Texas. Uh, we'll be in Northern California. We'll be in uh, Western Oregon. We'll be in the Idaho Panhandle. We'll be in Eastern Montana. And then finally winding up somewhere in the Black Hills. I'm not sure if it'll be in South Dakota or in Wyoming. But it should be an epic month of uh, hunting and traveling and uh, hanging out with just some phenomenal people. So keep up with everything that happens there over on the Instagram page. And if you have not done so, please tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell an acquaintance about the podcast. Leave a five-star review or uh, a written review over on Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. And thank you so much. We'll see you next time.